We didn't start the fire. It was always burning since the world's been turning. We didn't light it, but we tried to fight it. Hear all about the fight in the danger zone. Amazing stories, incredible music, terrible singing about military history. I'm Paul. Sit back and relax if you can. If you're driving, don't even think of changing stations. You know how dangerous it is to take your hands off the wheel and your eyes off the road. In 1982-83, the world stood at one minute before midnight. Russia was ready to launch an all-out first nuclear strike against the West because, wrongly, they knew that America was about to launch a surprise nuclear attack on them. How the hell was the world going to avoid this? Famous director Stanley Kubrick used the late Vera Lynn's famous World War II song to good effect at the end of his movie Dr. Strangelove, which ended with a global nuclear war. Everything that was happening in the world of 1982 and 1983 definitely looked to the Soviets as if the Americans were getting ready to launch a sudden unprovoked nuclear strike on the Soviet Union. On 8 March 1983, Ronald Reagan at the Convention of the National Association of Evangelicals in Orlando, Florida, branded the Soviet Union as the evil empire. In 1983, the Americans started to deploy their new Pershing II intermediate-range ballistic missiles in Europe. The Soviet Union had already deployed their intermediate-range ballistic missiles in the countries of their Warsaw Pact allies. But that fact didn't count from their paranoid point of view. The Pershing II could hit vital targets in Russia just four minutes after launch. On 23 March 1983, President Reagan called on the scientific community to work on a great new initiative, the Strategic Defence Initiative, to put satellites and missiles into space to render nuclear weapons obsolete. It would destroy Russian missiles soon after launch, so that they would never be able to attack their targets. For the Soviets, this meant that the American plan was effectively to disarm them. This made it imperative to launch their attack before such a defence shield could become a reality. The KGB stepped up its efforts to find out when the Americans were going to attack them. MI6 and the CIA read the intelligence they were getting from the Russians as just meaning one or two harmless things, that the KGB were hopelessly incompetent or they were just playing the usual Cold War game. That the Soviets really believed that they were going to be the victims of an American first nuclear strike never crossed anyone's mind. MI6 was the first intelligence organization, to realize that they had misread the Russian mind. Russia was genuinely fixated on the belief that they were facing an imminent American first nuclear strike. They saw that the only defense against that was for Russia itself to be the ones to launch the first attack 
so overwhelming in force that the casualties caused by American retaliation and their NATO allies would be tolerable, maybe as low as 150 million people killed. The British had the advantage in trying to deal with this incredibly horrific intelligence situation by having their spy on the inside, Colonel Oleg Gudievsky. He was giving MI6 the messages that he was seeing come into the embassy, the Russian embassy in London. So they knew exactly what the Soviets were thinking. The Americans didn't have that. It wasn't usual practice for MI6 and CIA to share the information about any spies that they had inside the enemy's camp, or too much of what they learnt from those sources. But what was developing here and now was too serious and dangerous. The British were going to have to change the way things were done with the Americans. The distribution of intelligence gained from this Russian double agent, whose identity was still unknown to all but a handful of people, was going to have possibly lethal consequences for Gordievsky. But that is for the next program. On 8 June 1982, President Reagan gave his speech to the British Parliament, in which he promised to leave Marxism-Leninism on the ash heap of history. America's defence build-up was continued at a fast pace. The Americans also engaged in many of what are called PSYOPs, operations to make the Soviets realise how vulnerable they were to attack by the Americans. American aircraft entered Soviet airspace and submarines and other naval craft got close to key Russian bases and facilities. While those operations were successful, the Russians reacted by putting even more resources into Operation Ryan, their codename for the operation to find out the date when the Americans were going to launch their nuclear strike. Overseas Soviet intelligence agencies were instructed to report suspicious activity which would reveal the American preparation for war. Communism has always encouraged underlings to give people on the upper levels what they want. The Soviet residentura, the spies operating in Soviet embassies around the world, that reported such activity feeding the paranoia of the Soviet leadership were praised. Those that didn't were criticised and told to try harder. World War III was rapidly becoming a self-fulfilling prophecy. A major new escalation happened on 1 September 1983 when a Korean pilot flew his Korean Airlines plane, Flight 007, with 246 passengers and 23 crew accidentally into Russian airspace over the Kamchatka Peninsula. Top secret Soviet installations were located there. The Soviets sent up fighters to intercept. The fighter pilot tried to make contact with the passenger airliner but got no response. A heat-seeking missile was fired at the plane bringing it down with the loss of all on board. On 6 September 1983, President Reagan delivered a stinging attack on the Soviet Union over this incident. And make no mistake about it, 
This attack was not just against ourselves or the Republic of Korea. This was the Soviet Union against the world and the moral precepts which guide human relations among people everywhere. It was an act of barbarism, born of a society which wantonly disregards individual rights and the value of human life and seeks constantly to expand and dominate other nations. The Soviet embassy in London was bombarded with telegrams from Moscow about how they saw these verbal attacks as part of the build-up to justify the planned American first nuclear strike against the Soviet Union. By now, the Soviet leader, Andropov, was bedridden and dying. The straw that was likely to break the Soviet Union into pushing the button to fire its nuclear arsenal at the West was NATO, beginning its war games called Able Archer 83, from 2 to 11 November 1983, the war game rehearsed how NATO would deal with a situation where conventional warfare had broken out in Europe and had escalated to nuclear warfare. It was an old practice to engage in what were described as war games as a way to slip smoothly and a little unobtrusively into a real war. These exercises, moving to launch a nuclear strike, was exactly what Operation Rhine had been trying to find out about. On October 1983, a large volume of secret communications passed between the US and England. This was out of the ordinary. In fact, it was about American preparations to invade Grenada, but the Soviet Union didn't know that. In some ways, Soviet concerns about a first strike being launched was made more likely because the war games were taking place over a Soviet holiday. Again, that has long been a favourite trick to take the enemy by surprise. Just look at the attack on Sunday at Pearl Harbour, the Egyptian-Syrian attack on Israel on the holiest day in the Jewish calendar, Yom Kippur. The KGB warned the residentura around the world that from the time when a decision was made to launch a first strike, the actual attack would then most likely be launched in 7 to 10 days. A telling sign of how the leadership in the Soviet Union would react if the roles were reversed was the instruction from Moscow to London to closely watch the top-end political, bureaucratic and military class if they began to evacuate their own families from London. The KGB took that to be a strong indication of a pending attack. It was the same thing that had happened in Moscow in 1941 as the Germans looked to be about to take the capital. Those same classes of people in Soviet society had led the panicked flight from the city. The Soviets now well and truly geared up to get in the first blow. Their bombers in East Germany and Poland were armed with nuclear weapons. 70 of their SS-20 intermediate ballistic nuclear weapons were placed on the highest alert. Russian nuclear attack submarines were deployed under the Arctic ice to avoid detection and some analysts say that their intercontinental ballistic missile silos were readied for launch at a moment's notice. This was nothing like the Cuban Missile Crisis. This was really serious, and the world was 
just a nervous trigger finger away from a full-on nuclear war. The vast and useful amount of information that Colonel Oleg Gordievsky passed on to MI6 had helped it to take steps to calm Soviet fears down. There was no doubt in the minds of the British about just how close everyone had come to a full, all-out, no-holds-barred nuclear war. As part of the measures taken to try to avoid an accidental nuclear war, NATO had, at the last minute, made changes to the way the war games were conducted to encourage the Russians to understand that Able Archer 83 was just an exercise. But it seems that the changes, the deviations from the usual NATO war game practices had the exact opposite effect. Departing from the norm was interpreted as meaning that these exercises weren't exercises. Margaret Thatcher fully realised the danger that could accidentally come from the Russians' paranoia. She had to convince President Ronald Reagan about that. The explosive mixture of Soviet paranoia and American rhetoric could easily cause a spark to ignite a fire that would engulf the whole world. MI6 was instructed to tell the CIA that their Soviet spy had told them the Soviets thought that the war games were a lead-in to a full nuclear attack. It seemed that this information had an impact on Ronald Reagan. He knew he was bluffing and he thought that the Soviets understood the game. Ronald Reagan said, I don't see how they could have believed that, but it's something to think about. He'd also been given something to think about from the TV movie The Day After, which had gone to air in the United States on 20 November 1983. It was about a confrontation between the Warsaw Pact and NATO that escalated into a full-scale nuclear war. Soon after the Able Archer 83 war games, he'd been given a briefing by the Pentagon on the impact of a nuclear war. He said it was a sobering experience. On 18 November 1983, he wrote in his diary... I feel that the Soviets are so defense-minded, so paranoid about being attacked, that without being in any way soft on them, we ought to tell them no one here has any intention of doing anything like that. Thanks to the top-secret materials that Colonel Oleg Gordievsky had passed on to MI6, Margaret Thatcher and Ronald Reagan now had an invaluable insight into the thinking of the Soviets. Soviet paranoia was clearly a huge danger and the games that people played had to be modified to make sure they didn't go too far. In his memoirs, Ronald Reagan wrote, three years had taught me something surprising about the Russians. Many people at the top of the Soviet hierarchy were genuinely afraid of America and Americans. Perhaps this shouldn't have surprised me, but it did. In fact, I had difficulty accepting my own conclusion at first. It must be clear to anyone that Americans are a moral people who, since the founding of the nation, had always used our power only as a force for good in the world. During my first years in Washington, I think many of us in the administration took it for granted 
that the Russians, like ourselves, considered it unthinkable that the United States would launch a first strike against them. But the more experience I had with the Soviet leaders and other heads of state who knew them, the more I began to realize that many Soviet officials feared us not only as adversaries, but as potential aggressors, who might hurl nuclear weapons at them in a first strike. Because of this, and perhaps because of a sense of insecurity and paranoia, with roots reaching back to the invasion of Russia by Napoleon and Hitler, they had aimed a huge arsenal of nuclear weapons at us. So what was Colonel Oleg Gordievsky's gift to the world? NATO Pact War Games' Able Archer 83 took the world as close to the brink of full, all-out, no-holds-barred nuclear war. The decision was made by Margaret Thatcher and MI6 that it was vital that the secrets given by Colonel Oleg Gordievsky had to be shared more fully with the CIA and the USA. A secret internal CIA summary written several years after the Able Archer War Games read, Gordievsky's information was an epiphany for President Reagan. Only Gordievsky's timely warning to Washington via MI6 kept things from going too far, meaning nuclear war. Gordievsky's information to MI6 was thereafter given in summary form to President Ronald Reagan. Reagan understood the value of the information and the qualities of the man who was providing it. Reagan was very moved, knowing that the vital information he was being given came from an individual risking his life from somewhere deep in the Soviet system. The CIA had no access to any information that was anywhere near as useful. The information that the CIA was getting was more mundane information on the Soviets' military and what weapons research they were doing and developing. What Gordievsky was giving was information about how the top leaders of the Soviet Union were thinking. That information was rare and beyond value. President Reagan's response to Gordievsky's information was, as Bud McFarlane, Reagan's national security adviser, said, Reagan's conviction that a greater effort had to be made not just to reduce tension, but to end the Cold War. The great military historian, the late John Keegan, said of intelligence in his book Intelligence in War, however good does not point out unerringly the path to victory. Victory is an elusive prize bought with blood rather than brains. Intelligence is the handmaiden, not the mistress of the warrior. In Ben McIntyre's excellent book on Colonel Olive Gordievsky, The Spy and the Traitor, he sums up Gordievsky's contribution, basically agreeing with John Keegan's view on the limited value of intelligence, but making a special exception for the contribution of Gordievsky. He says, Spies tend to make extravagant claims for their craft, but the reality of espionage is that it frequently makes little lasting difference. Yet very occasionally, spies have a profound impact on history. 
The pantheon of world-changing spies is small and select, and Oleg Gordievsky is in it. Margaret Thatcher had come to have a soft spot for Colonel Oleg Gordievsky, a man who was known to her by his codename, Mr. Collins. On Valentine's Day, 14 February 1984, Margaret Thatcher attended the funeral of Yuri Andropov in Red Square. Margaret Thatcher remained solemn and dignified throughout the funeral, even when the pallbearers accidentally dropped his coffin. After the funeral, she spoke for 40 minutes with Andropov's secretary, Konstantin Chernyenko. The way she conducted herself in Moscow at the funeral and with the Soviet leaders made an impressive performance. On the rostrum, she wore a black morning dress and a fur hat. She had a serious, respectful expression on her face. Ambassador Popov in London told his senior staff, The minister's sensitivity to the occasion and formidable political brain had made a deep impression, Mrs. Thatcher has gone out of the way to impress her horse. The funeral of Andropov and the benefits at Yield to England couldn't have gone off better. Gordievsky had given MI6 instructions on how Mrs. Thatcher should behave, how the Soviet leadership thought. Gordievsky briefed MI6 on what the KGB was thinking, hoping and fearing. When Margaret Thatcher's visit to London was over, Gordievsky briefed the Soviet government on how the visit of the British Prime Minister had gone. His positioning was the perfect circle. Gordievsky's vital role in improving relations between England and the Soviet Union was even more vital in December 1984, when Mikhail Gorbachev visited England on the invitation of Margaret Thatcher. Ostensibly, one of the main purposes of Gorbachev's visit was to visit the British Library, a holy site of communism, where Karl Marx wrote Das Kapital. Margaret Thatcher saw Gorbachev as a man likely soon to be leading the Soviet Union. Gordievsky was given detailed briefings by MI6 on things that would be helpful in building better relations and understanding between England and the Soviet Union, and he briefed MI6 on how Mrs. Thatcher should conduct herself in relation to the meetings with Gorbachev. At the end of every day of Gorbachev's eight-day visits, he required a briefing of three or four pages telling him what the next day's meetings would bring up. There was no way anyone could know this, except Gordievsky did, thanks to the MI6 briefing he got, so he could deliver the required report. The meetings with Margaret Thatcher and Gorbachev went very well. Happily, there were points of difficulty and some clashes, but that was bound to happen and it would have looked remarkably odd if they hadn't. Observers described the very real chemistry going on between Margaret Thatcher and Gorbachev. They were both, in effect, reading from the same script, written by the same man, Colonel Oleg Gordievsky. Apart from helping to develop good working relations between the Soviet Union and England, MI6 were working hard to have Gordievsky appointed as the ambassador in London. Such a promotion would improve the already excellent information that he was able to provide. Margaret Thatcher summed her impressions 
of Gorbachev up by saying that she thought he was a man that one could do business with. This positioning proved invaluable, indeed vital. Soon after Chenyenko died in 1985, just three years after Andropov, the new leader, Gorbachev, was a much younger man. He hadn't fought in World War II, the Great Patriotic War. He'd been only 22 when Stalin died. Mikhail Gorbachev was the man to modernise the Soviet Union, overseeing the dismantling of the Soviet Empire that had come into existence partly through treaties with Adolf Hitler and partly from the victorious Soviet armies occupying Eastern Europe as colonies at the end of World War II. But England was not the only country to have spies in the country of their enemy. One of those foreign spies working for the Russians was going to make a lot of money by finding out who this high-level spy inside the Soviet Union was and betraying him for the metaphorical 30 pieces of silver. And now two unlikely things were going to become a vital part of Colonel Gordievsky's life. A plastic shopping bag from the British supermarket chain Safeways and a Mars bar. If you're curious, join me for my final program on Colonel Oleg Gordievsky. Thanks for joining me, Paul, in The Danger Zone. If you have any questions about anything in this program, maybe you could catch up with me for my guided tour at the Australian Armour and Artillery Museum on Saturday morning starting at 10.30am. Probably the world's best guided tour of an armour and artillery museum, borrowing the Danish Kulzberg slogan for their beer. If you missed this program, you can catch up with it as a podcast on Spotify, Apple and many other sites. Search for The Danger Zone, bracket, DZ, close bracket. And if you like this program, you'll definitely love my other program, CYKIAE, also available on the same podcast sites.